0: Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, Rune Muller-Stahl, a Danish political scientist, will talk about the left's victory in Denmark's recent elections. And at the bottom of the hour, the law professor Heidi Matthews will talk about an official panel's finding that Canada's brutal treatment of its indigenous population amounts to genocide. On June 5th, Denmark held a parliamentary election. Parenthetically, that parliament has 179 members for just over 5 million people. Our House is 435 members for 329 million people. If our House, and I'm leaving aside the Senate here because it's such a ridiculously undemocratic body that it shouldn't exist, were proportionally as large relative to population as Denmark's parliament is, it would have over 10,000 members. If Denmark's legislature were sized proportionally to ours, it would have just seven members. Back to the Danish election. It was won by a coalition of left and center-left parties, with the Social Democrats in the lead. The head of that party, Mette Frederiksen, is likely to become the Prime Minister. The Danish People's Party, a right-wing anti-immigrant formation that was one of the pioneers of that sort of politics in Europe, took a shellacking with just 9% of the vote. A third what the Social Democrats got, and not that much more than the Red-Green Party, part of the victorious coalition, though to the left of the Social Dems, got. While this is good news, as is the fact that the Social Democrats dropped their earlier neoliberalism in favor of something more progressive-sounding, Frederickson and her party adopted a tough anti-immigrant line. Here with more is the political scientist Rune Mahler-Stahl of the University of Copenhagen. Give us just uh, the broad details of, of, of the results, who, who won and who lost.
1: Overall, you can say that the left block won. Generally, Danish politics is—it's uh, very complicated. There's uh, nine parties in uh, in parliament, uh, even more running. But basically, there's uh, there's two blocks: uh, a centre-left block and a centre-right block. And the centre-left block won quite handily. Uh, I think it's one of the biggest uh, swings to the left uh, since the 19 the 1980s. Um, we can expect uh, the social democrats to to form a government. Quite soon, probably, uh, as we speak, uh, negotiations are uh, going on uh, between um, the Social Democrats and the other parties of the left bloc. Another another detail uh, is that um, the left parties uh, in Denmark to the left of of the Social Democrats... the Socialist People's Party and the Red Green Alliance have been strengthened in this election. Depending on who you uh, who you count, whether or not you count a new um, Green Party uh, as part of uh, the called the Alternative of, as part of the left, then uh, this might be the, the strongest left contingent in the Danish Parliament ever. Otherwise, uh, uh, 1987. But this is a quite a quite left-wing Parliament that the, that the voters have um, have returned.
0: The other parties, the smaller parties, other than the Social Democrats in this left coalition, um, how powerful will they be in this coalition? Will they have a large presence in the government, or will the Social Democrats dominate it?
1: They probably won't join uh, join the government. Denmark has this uh, system of, of negative uh, parliamentarism, meaning that uh, you, you don't need to form uh, a majority government, you just need to uh, not have a majority against you. So the most likely outcome is that the Social Democrats will form a single party minority government. The question of the relative power is still to be decided. The last time we had uh, a social democratic uh, government um, uh, from 2011 to, to 2015 uh, under uh, Prime Minister hiller smith the, the government despite uh, the Socialist People Party being part of uh, the government having uh, government ministries uh, they they took a pretty ro- um, rightward or a new liberal uh, stance on, a, on economic policy and the new uh, the new social Democratic leader Frederiksen, has been uh, campaigning on attack to the left uh, on economic policies um, it's up to negotiations now. There are two big areas of, of contention in these um, in these talks. One is uh, the economic policy. Again, the, you have two parties to the left: Socialist People's Party, the Red Green Alliance, wanting um, more redistribution, taxes on the rich, and you have to the centre the centrist social uh, social liberal party that are. Um, hoping to drag the new government uh, to the right. So it's pretty uh, complicated negotiations. Besides the economic issues, there's also the issue of immigration policy. Um, Denmark has been... rightly famous for, um, or infamous uh, for very, very strict uh, immigration policies. There's been like these uh, examples of uh, laws uh, taking away uh, the jewelry and uh, valuables of of refugees. We have uh, some pretty horrendous uh, examples of uh, refugees uh, being detained under um, very bad conditions, children uh, basically getting... um, And mental illnesses from this sort of treatment. And there's been quite a lot of critique amongst the the other parties of the left coalition, not the Social Democrats, but the other parties. um, And they want to see changes there.
0: Yeah, let's, um, let's talk about that a bit, because the, the, the Danish People's Party, which is one of the, the, the pioneers of this kind of you know, right populist anti-immigrant uh, politics in Europe, didn't do very well in the election. But on the other hand, the, the Social Democrats really uh, took on a lot of their anti-immigrant rhetoric. What is the appeal of this anti-immigrant politics in Denmark? There are people who say this is kind of essential to social democracy as a nationalist, exclusionist thing. I don't know if that's true or not, but how do you, how do you feel about it? What is the roots of the anti-immigrant feeling?
1: It's a good question. I don't think anyone has... uh like the definitive uh, answer, both in, in international uh, political science and within Denmark, people are, are still uh, discussing this. Uh, but it's, I don't think there's any, um, there's any doubt that there is a relatively broad consensus on this very strict uh, anti immigration policy. Some of it might be that immigration is, is pretty new to Scandinavian countries. Uh, this used to be uh, very homogeneous countries until quite recently. Uh, and again, this is. In in contrast to France or or the UK that's had uh, large uh, colonial uh, empires. Uh, Scandinavian countries has, has only had small empires in that um, in that sense. So I think there's, there's been b- perhaps a bit more of a shock uh, with the, the waves of uh, first uh, guest workers, uh, later um, later refugees, especially from uh, from the Middle East. Then of course all over Europe there was the, the 2015 uh, so-called refugee uh, crisis. Whatever uh, the sort of the the, the basic, yeah, causal mechanisms at play, then there's, um, there's no, I think there's no doubt that the Social Democrats, with their turn to to the right on on immigration policies, managed to swing uh, quite a few uh, voters uh, across especially from, from the Danish People's Party, but also from other, uh, other right-wing um, parties. But this also means that even though we have a new, um, a new majority, and even though the parties uh, that have been opposing this very strict uh, immigration line, um, the Red-Green Alliance, the social liberals uh, of, of the center, there's very little prospect of, of these, um, these rules being changed uh, very dramatically. That there might be some, some smaller changes, but the overall strategy of treating uh, refugees c- uh, quite badly in order to, uh, to scare off uh, asylum seekers, that strategy will probably continue.
0: One of the, um, the toxic effects of right-wing parties, like the, the People's Party, is that uh, they may not uh, come to power themselves, but they push everyone in their direction. I mean, is this, is this what's happened? Uh, they, they really didn't do very well in this election. Is it that-
1: no, they, 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 they did it very badly.
0: Everyone else has taken up their message.
1: Yeah, and I think this has happened for actually quite a while. Basically, the Danish People's Party has been very powerful for almost uh, almost 20 years. And the, the basis of the power has been an alliance with the, with, the mainstream, with the mainstream parties of the right. But that alliance, in some ways, have, has been shattered by, by this election. If in the last couple of cycles, uh, the Danish People's Party grew to be the, the biggest party on the right. That meant also that their sort of their way of presenting themselves as both being insiders and outsiders, as being uh, this sort of uh, anti-establishment party has, has been, a, been a harder sell. I think this, that has meant that they they'd lost some of their appeal to, to voters. We've seen the same in Norway, where, where their right-wing populist entered government uh, some years ago. And that also meant uh, quite a drop in their vote share. Um, but again, as you say, that, um, part of the story is also that, uh, that the mainstream parties, and now including the Social Democrats, have taken over a large part of this anti-immigration rhetoric there 's little uh, little hope at least in the foreseeable future of um, of changing that. I think one sliver of hope here is that uh, for for the first time in uh, in mm-hmm. m- many years, the debate in the election hasn 't been dominated by the issue of immigration. Playing the race card has been a part of uh, you know the winning strategy of the right wing that 's meant that they have basically won uh, five out of the last uh, six elections um, but this time even though they tried quite hard to uh, to politicize refugees immigration uh, they have they've been unable to to do this instead the, the completely dominating topic at least if you uh, according to to polls of, of voters have been uh, have been climate change and um i think the the dpp the right populists, have been completely unable to produce anything on, on the issue of, uh, of, of climate change. They simply have no answer to, to people's worries there. And I think that has, uh, that has actually cost them quite a bit. Their former chairman called uh, uh, people climate, uh, climate loonies. They just couldn't see why people would, uh, would care about something as um, inconsequential as uh, the destruction of, of the planet. But I think that's, that has caused them quite a bit of support.
0: I want to get back to this climate question because it's very important. But um, what we saw, we've seen in France, and I think we've seen elsewhere in Europe, is that as the, the mainstream left parties, the central left parties, went neoliberal, they lost their voter base. That voter base then started voting for the right,
1: you know, the national front, Le Pen. Is that what happened in Denmark? Basically, yeah. The movement started in the 1990s. The main issue in Denmark has probably been, uh, been pensions, uh, pension rights. Uh, Denmark has had a series of, uh, of, of pension uh, pension reforms. Uh, also, the whole package of, of neoliberal reforms, privatization, uh, reduction of unemployment uh, benefits. Um, compared to a place like uh, like the U.S. or the U.K., uh, Denmark still has a relatively benign and generous welfare state, but it has been uh, reduced quite dramatically, especially. Since uh, since the crisis, uh, the Social Democrats has been uh, has been active in uh, most of these uh, reforms, and this has cost them yeah, voters, especially uh, from uh, their traditional base in the traditional uh, working classes. If we're looking at why why they got uh, got some of those voters uh, back uh, in this election, and, and I, th- I think they have, I think it's uh, um, that they have at least on a, on a rhetorical level turned away from the earlier neoliberal uh, rhetoric Uh, again uh, as i as i mentioned earlier the current leader of of the social democrats uh, meta Frederiksen. um, who's probably going to be, uh, be the next uh, prime minister. She has uh, been very insistent on, on distancing herself from, from the last uh, social democratic government, uh, stating that uh, that government ended uh, after one term. They, uh, they were famous for uh, cutting uh, the corporate tax rates, uh, selling off part of uh, the national energy company to, to Goldman Sachs. She's been trying to uh, to make this uh, this move of turning uh, turning uh, right on immigration policy, but left on on economic uh, issues. Um, we still need to see uh, to what extent this is uh, this is electoral rhetoric, and to what extent this is uh, this is actually uh, substantial policy differences. So far, they have um, put forward an, an economic program with some progressive. Uh, advances, they, are, they want to uh, tax uh, uh, big inheritance uh, larger, they want to regulate the large uh, CEO pay packages. Uh, there are some uh, progressive elements, but it's still, it's, uh, it's nothing big and it's nothing substantial enough to tackle the increases in, in inequality that we've seen in Denmark in the last uh, couple, of, um, couple of decades uh, and the, the general uh, trajectory of uh, welfare retrenchment.
0: I'm speaking with the Danish political scientist Rune Muller stahl Do you think the Social Democrats could have won or done as well as they did had they not taken this immigration turn?
1: There w- would have been possibilities, but it would have uh, demanded uh, a different um, a different strategy and uh, a harder turn to uh, to the left, probably. I think it's sort of a more um, Bernie Sanders approach, politicizing certain areas. I, I think that they might have been able to... Um, take back some of the voters, Uh, but it it would have been, it would have been more risky. They they took the safe, uh, the safe route in, in some ways. And I think whether or not uh, we like it, uh, seen from, from the left, uh, I think there is uh, a relatively broad, Voter support for uh, for these uh, immigration uh, policies. This might change uh, over uh, over the years, hopefully, uh, but it's uh, in the short term. It has been a relatively consistent trend that uh, that uh, a large part of the Danish electorate, uh, perhaps uh, two thirds, support the uh, strict immigration policies. In that way, it's probably been a cynical but effective strategy. Um. Denmark has been a sort of a, a test case of trying to to accommodate the populists again with with relatively limited success in in Sweden uh, the neighboring country uh, they've tried the, the opposite solution and for uh, for a while it looked like it, they were succeeding that they managed to keep uh, the Sweden Democrats uh, out of uh, out of power but we've seen a sort of a relentless rise as well uh, and we can see now that they're also they're, they're gaining on on the Social Democrats uh, in these years. It's a hard conundrum. Uh, the leftists uh, in Denmark has been, uh, has been battling with this for, um, for decades. Uh, um, of, I think the solution, um, again, in, um, in the years is probably to, um, to politicize other areas, to try to move some of these voters back by taking on some of uh, the more distributional economic, uh, economic questions, rather than the politics uh, being focused uh, primarily on these sort of uh, issues of, of national identity, immigration, uh, and, and so forth. But again, the, the, the right has uh, had a... That election. Hopefully, this can uh, lead to uh, to a re- reevaluation of of some of these um, some of these issues in um, in the the broader context uh, of an, you know not only electoral politics but also in the media environment uh, in Denmark. Um, so in, in a few years this this might have changed, but uh, as it stands now, I think it's um, again there is a relatively s- solid uh, wall of support for these. Um, Pretty uh, pretty strict, pretty draconian uh, immigration rules.
0: And now back to climate. How did climate get to be such a, a prominent issue? Was it uh, coming up from the grassroots? Was did the parties introduce it? How did it come to be?
1: Um, I, I think it was a grassroots uh, effort. We've had uh, the school strikes led by Greta Thunberg uh, of, uh, of Sweden. That has been um, a strong movement uh, in Denmark, especially uh, run by uh, students down to secondary uh, secondary school. Uh, so, so I think we can see, see it primarily as a sort of a, a movement-based uh, ground-up development. I th- think there's, it's probably also that uh, we are at the moment, uh, at least in this part of Europe, at the... Uh, the, probably at the top of a of a boom. They're, they're not as uh, boom times are not as good as they used to be. But still, unemployment is relatively low. So some of these issues relating to, to crisis unemployment has been less uh, less prevalent. This means that issues like uh, like climate has been able to to gain greater prominence. Um, I think there's also Denmark used to be, especially in in the 1990s, uh, uh, one of the front runners in in tackling. Climate climate change, uh, the country uh, had a, and was one of the first to, to really introduce wind power as a, um, as a large part of the energy system. And I think we're still living on some sort of this legacy, but uh, in, in recent years, uh, uh, a series of right-wing governments has cut down on a lot of these uh, issues. So I think there's, there's been a, a thirst amongst uh, a large part of the electorate, especially the young, uh, to return to this sort of... Um, to so this sort of front runner uh, status, I think there is uh, probably one of the, the good parts of the Danish uh, national self image is that um, we're a front runner when it comes to tackling uh, tackling climate change. And I think there has been yeah, a, a huge appetite uh, for this. Uh, if we're seeing, you know, where can we expect like the biggest progressive uh, changes after uh, after the elections? I think this is probably also one of the uh, one of the areas. I think we're gonna see. Quite large investments in um, yeah, wind energy and other other issues regarding uh, regarding climate uh, climate change. I think this is the one area where all the parties in in the left block are actually um, are actually in agreement, so hopefully we'll see. Um, Resolute action there. Um, the question, of course, uh, comes uh, then, you know, t- to what extent is this also uh, not only an effective climate adjustment, but also uh, a socially just one? We've seen in France what can happen if you don't uh, take into account the distributional effects. Um, and I think that would be a big, um, a big discussion and that probably also be one of the uh, the main tasks of of the left uh, in uh, in the coming uh, in the coming years to make sure that we get uh, sort of a climate adjustment that's more in in the vein of, of a green new deal so it actually has positive social effects on employment uh, on distribution uh, and not um yeah, not something that's uh, that's basically putting um, putting the bill uh, to to the poorest parts of, of the population. Uh, there is a tendency, of course, uh, if you're using taxes and um, and uh, other things that you know, you can have pretty bad social uh, social consequences. Uh, again, as uh, the Yellow Vest in France has shown, how how this can be done, uh, how this can be done badly. Um, so so that would be my uh, that would be my hope for the new government.
0: Finally, uh, given the structure of the Danish uh, political system, can this new government do pretty much what it wants to, the way, say, a British government can, if it has a big majority, or will there be a lot of compromises and resistance and fighting going on?
1: There will be a lot of compromises. Um, again, Denmark has, because of uh, the very, fra- uh, you know, the proportional election system and uh, the traditionally also quite fragmented uh, parliamentary scene with the. Um, uh, with quite a lot of parties, there will be a lot of uh, a lot of compromises. There's also a tradition um, in Scandinavia of pretty broad uh, agreements on a lot of topics, and basically, in the, it's in the DNA DNA of uh, of Scandinavian social democrats to try to govern by by making broad broad uh, coalitions. We need to see if there's been a change. I tend to be uh, to be skeptical. It might just be, be the rhetoric, and uh, as soon as they're, they're back in government, it'll be back to to the third way. But at least we have seen some rhetorical changes, at least uh, on um, on the economic uh, level. Uh, but it would be the first time in uh, yeah, probably since since the 1970s, we'd actually have uh, a government giving a new uh, new social rights uh, to to citizens. So um, it's interesting times. Uh, it's interesting times ahead, but. I would tend to be uh, a bit skeptical on, uh, on, large, uh, on large changes despite the, the large uh, swing to, uh, to the left uh, in, um, in Parliament.
0: That was Rune Muller stahl a political scientist at the University of Copenhagen. You can find his writings on Danish politics on the Jacobin Magazine website. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Distant Cousins There's a limited supply And we're down to the dozens And this is why Big-eyed beans from Venus Oh my, oh
2: my Boys and girls Earth people around the circle Mixtures of man alike Big-eyed beans from Venus Don't let anything get in between us Beam in on me, baby, and we'll beam together. I know we've always been together, but there's more.
0: <laughs> Mr. Zuthorn Rolo, hit that long lunar note and let it flow. That was some of Big-Eyed Beans from Venus by Captain Beefheart, a song of no political relevance. Next, Native Genocide in Canada. Last week, the National Inquiry into Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls, appointed by the government in 2015, released its final report. It concluded that there are quote, serious reasons to believe that Canada's past and current policies, omissions and actions towards First Nation peoples, Inuit and Métis, amount to genocide in breach of Canada's international obligations, triggering its responsibility under international law. Métis are people of mixed indigenous and European descent. Needless to say, Canada's treatment of its indigenous population isn't much different from ours, though we've never had an official commission declare it genocide. Here's Heidi Matthews, assistant professor at Osgoode Hall Law School at York University in Toronto, with more. She's the co-director of the Nathanson Center on Transnational Human Rights, Crime and Security at York. She wrote about the report in McLean's, a Canadian magazine, and was promptly attacked by a band of ignorant haters on Twitter who thought they understood law better than a law professor. Heidi Matthews. Let's just uh, get a little factual background here to start with the National Inquiry into Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls uh, Report. Um, what's the background on this uh, this report and why and how is it produced?
2: The call for this report uh, came out of the 2015 uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was set up in Canada to deal with the really egregious legacy of violence and harm uh that had been uh the result of the residential schools program what had been known at the time as the Indian residential schools policy in Canada residential school policy in Canada was similar but not exactly the same to uh some of the programs that had taken place in the United States with respect to indigenous populations there but in essence uh, the idea was that children indigenous children would be taken out of their communities and sent to schools um that were often run by um the church and the you know the stated the really overt and stated goal of those of those schools was to actually completely remove the existence of Indigenous identity in Canada, right? So in other words, to just really support the process of assimilating Indigenous people into the Canadian population. And there's a quote that I like in the sense that I think it's really telling from the Deputy Minister of Indian Affairs back in 1920, where he explained to Parliament at the time that the residential school policy was intended to actually absorb Indigenous children into the body politic.
0: Yeah, until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. Yeah, yeah. Um, at what period like, were these um, these relocations going on?
2: This was happening from sort of the turn of the century to, uh, strikingly, in, actually into the 1990s the strength or the sort of like bulk of this activity happened in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, it started to peter out after that, but the the residential schools, um, you know, the last one did close actually in the 90s. And so the residential schools led to this Truth, truth and Reconciliation Commission. In, that was really striking because normally Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, right, are things that are uh, instituted in, or societies that are actually transitioning from violent conflict. And so the most obvious one that comes to mind is South Africa. But here we here we have one in Canada. And as a result of that process, there was a recognition that Indigenous women and girls, um, as well as two-spirited people were disproportionately subject to violence, including sexual violence, but not limited to, to that, and that there should be a process for, for dealing with the egregious level of actual murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. And and so that's how the government, the Liberal government, ended up commissioning this national inquiry, which was presided over by a former um, Indigenous judge and went on for several years and has now, as of last Monday, uh, issued its final report.
0: Prime Minister Stephen Harper, not known necessarily as the most enlightened and progressive fellow, uh, issued an apology in 2008, uh, but uh, that really didn't cut much uh, ice, did it?
2: Yeah, so the, it's funny because the Canadian government is really into, in like true Canadian fashion, like we like to say we're sorry, um, <laughs> for all sorts of things. And that extends, right, from the person on the street that bumps into you actually to the government. So not to belittle the importance of apologies to people who've been harmed by governmental action, but the government's issued apologies for all sorts of things. So you're quite right. Um, Stephen Harper issued an apology for residential schools well over a decade and. There have also been apologies for the Canadian practice during World War II of interning Japanese Canadians, similar to the kind of thing that happened in the United States. We apologize for that. We apologize also for the Chinese head tax pol- historical policy. So there's a whole a whole range of really racially abusive and violent policies that we've apologized for, for in the past. But yeah, that doesn't, I think that the issue with apologies is really that they don't get to any structural or like concrete material changes.
0: But I think a lot of American politicians could even take that step.
2: Yeah, true.
0: <laughs> As you say at the beginning of your piece, you uh, make the point that these um, these crimes were really not uh, uh, marginal. They were really central uh, to Canadian identity formation. Could you talk about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So part of what the uh, the National Inquiries Report does is, is actually – it didn't just gather evidence with respect to women and girls who had gone missing or been murdered, but it actually – really had a mandate that was focused on that, but went a bit further. And that mandate was designed to look at the way in which Canada's history of colonial structures and policies actually persisted in Canada and came to constitute what the report calls a root cause of the violence that these women and girls, but also all Indigenous People are suffering currently in Canada. So the, the point of the report is to tie all these historical policies, which were colonial in nature, designed to create and sustain a status quo, let's say, white culture, They haven't disappeared, even though many of them have disappeared on paper. They have either morphed into different sorts of policies or patterns and structures of governmental indifference with respect to Canada's Indigenous people.
0: How do these things continue today? I mean, what do you have in mind?
2: So all sorts of things. So just to, just to, to make the listeners aware of some of the historical... Policies and practices we're talking about, Um, we're talking about the Indian Act in Canada, which was structured Canada's relationship with Indigenous peoples and um, had all sorts of uh, problematic parts, the 60s scoop a strange name, but that refers to the practice in the 1960s of forcible adoption of Indigenous children, again, for the purpose of assimilation. So we see how central the issue of childhood is for identity formation, right? And that's no surprise to any of us. Again, the residential schools, and then general breaches of human and Indigenous rights, and those today um, you know, we can talk about and again, all this stuff will be quite familiar to Americans who are paying any attention at all to the living conditions and lived reality of of Indigenous peoples in the United States. The same goes in Australia. I spoke to their national radio last night. Um so Canada's not unique in this, but but it's unique in, in, in taking the action it has done with the report. And in terms of how things sort of continue today and and ordinary, regular, quote, white, coded white Canadians sort of benefit from these colonial policies will often have to do with things like resource allocation, right? So one example would be the simple um, way in which individual or rather Indigenous Canadians are over-policed, over-surveilled, over-criminalized, right? So um, similar to the reality in the U.S. with the Indigenous population and also the African-American population, you know, radically over-represented, over Presented rather in the incarcerated um, population, and just really uh, not given in in many instances the the sorts of funding structures needed for um, Indigenous communities to 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 flourish. And I would say for people who are interested in learning more, the report is available in its entirety. It's very long, but it's it's split up into sort of accessible pieces. Um, and it's available online. And one of those pieces um, is actually the calls for action, um, which are ex- very, very extensive. So so I believe range into the actual hundreds um, of specific ways in which the government of Canada is called upon to materially improve the conditions of Indigenous population.
0: I know this is um, perhaps a sensitive point, but it, sometimes it seems like Canadians uh, like to think of themselves uh, as the nicer North Americans, uh, that especially in contrast to the United States. But uh, what you're talking about sounds uh you've got a record of brutality that can match ours.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And in the piece that I wrote for Maclean's that you mentioned, I really wanted to sort of bring home to people what I actually call uh, at one point the lie of canadian liberal tolerance because um i do think that you know especially vis-a-vis for a country that's sitting just north of the united states and oftentimes thinks of itself in relationship to the political realities down south in particular today with trump you know it's it uh sometimes it doesn't make sense uh, for a lot of of regular Canadians to think of ourselves as as having a really ugly past that bleeds into the present when when Donald Trump is in office, but I think you know this is as I say in the report and i 've talked about before this is an election year in canada justin trudeau 's government is really struggling in the wake of a pretty disastrous corruption scandal. People may have read about that in the news as well. And so there's a real threat that the conservative government that's led by Andrew Scheer, who is really an alt-right and, as far as I'm concerned, quite dangerous figure, uh, can come to power. And I think the way in which ordinary Canadians manage to think about the language of genocide and the concrete findings of the report is going to be really important for defining what the country wants to be moving forward in this election year.
0: Now, you use that very powerful word genocide. Uh, I notice you say that in the piece, uh, and you've gotten an awful lot of trouble on Twitter for using that word. Um, so how does genocide apply in this case? I mean, I think most people think, you know, if there's no Auschwitz, there's no genocide, but uh, it's really uh, the legal definition is a lot more complicated.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so I should should say that the word is not mine, but rather the finding of the report itself. Um, and so there's again for, for those who are interested in reading more, uh, there's a 46-page supplement to the report available online um, that details the legal analysis of the report's finding of genocide. And so just to just to sum up the finding for people to, reading directly. From the language of the report, so I'm quoting now, the report says, the violence the National Inquiry heard about amounts to a race-based genocide of Indigenous peoples, including First Nations, Inuit, and Métis, which especially targets women, girls, and 2SLB G-E-T-Q-Q-I-A, it's quite the, uh, quite the acronym, people. This genocide has been empowered by colonial structures, evidenced notably by the Indian Act, the CISTI Scoop, residential schools, and breaches of human and Indigenous rights, leading directly to the current increased rates of violence, death, and suicide in Indigenous populations. And so, so the finding of genocide um, is the finding of the report rather than my finding. And the sort of Public education campaign, for lack of a better word, that I've been running on Twitter for the last week has been focused on explaining to people really as a first step what the law of genocide actually consists of. And then as a second step, how we might go about thinking about how that definition can apply to the factual situation in Canada. And those are really Two different steps. And so to address what directly your question, Doug, about um, the tendency to think about genocide as applying only in cases, um, you know, so paradigmatically in the case of the Holocaust, but then in cases that could really be analogized to the Holocaust in the sense of having millions of people die, that idea is one that exists in the public consciousness, but it's, it's it would be wrong.
0: I'm speaking with Heidi Matthews, professor of law at York University in Toronto. Yeah, it was quite remarkable reading some of these things on Twitter, these attacks on you. I mean, you're a professor of law, and this touches on your area of expertise, but people were telling you what genocide really, really is. You don't understand. But yeah, so how, just how is this genocide under the legal definition?
2: Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, a lot of people have said to me, you know, why are you engaging with the trolls? And I actually I think that they might just I'm I'm worried that they're not trolls. It's just regular people who are confused and feeling defensive. So so the definition of genocide, the international legal definition which applies as part of of customary international law, which uh means that it is binding on all states. Um, but also applies as part of domestic Canadian law, refers to the, the several different physical acts uh, that can include murder, but don't need to include murder. And so the actions that can make up genocide, as I said, met killing members of a group, but can also include deliberately inflicting on that group conditions of life calculate it to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part it can also include measures intended to prevent births within that group and it can also include forcibly transferring children of the protected group to another group so all of those elements are what we call in law the act element or the actus reus and you just need one of them to satisfy the definition of genocide and like every crime, there's also an intent element. Okay. And so genocide is special because it, it has what we refer to in international law and criminal law as a special intent requirement. Um, and that special intent must mean that the person, um, or here the state, that uh, is charged with committing genocide needs to have undertaken the act requirement with the specific intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. And so that's the definition of genocide that we find in international law, but also in domestic law, it's also the definition that the International Criminal Court uses. Now, when it comes to applying that, To the particular case, I think it's fair and important to point out that within the realm of uh, expert legal opinion on the jurisprudence of genocide, as it's been rolled out over history, so... In essentially uh, The international criminal tribunals That followed the end of the Cold War Uh, So the special tribunal For the former Yugoslavia And also the tribunal um, That dealt with the genocide in Rwanda The case law that's come out of those tribunals um, And also some of the regional Human rights bodies Has been conflicted About uh, the way in which Some of these elements Are meant to be applied And the thing that makes it so, So in other words There is reasonable room To have a debate about this question And in particular, because in general, the law has come in to address genocide, um, as I mentioned before, in the wake really of violent. Uh, violent action on the on the part of uh, state-sponsored actors, right? So, in in other words, in the in the pursuit of a of a war. Um, and the thing about Canada is that this is not this is not a war. This is a slow-moving, long-ranging genocide that's constituted not by thousands and thousands of killings that took place within a defined time, but actually that systemic violence. Uh, state-sponsored violence uh, that went on for, for many generations, actually.
0: And uh, the intent of it was to eliminate the indigenous peoples as their own cultures, right? I mean, it was very explicitly uh, an act of cultural erasure. And you you have that quote from the, the Deputy Minister of Indian Affairs making that very plain. I mean, that really uh, is like what what genocide is all about.
2: Yeah, and it's, you know... I, so, from an evidentiary perspective, I will say, you know, proving intent is always very is always the more difficult part of the crime. And and as I said, there is conflicting opinion in some of the case law. Some case law has found that there needs to be an intent to physically destroy a group, whereas other case law has found um, that social group death. Uh, on the level, you know, so something that looks more like what you just uh, referred to as cultural death can suffice, um, and so the claim of the report uh, is that it's the social cohesion, which is cultural but not simply cultural, right? So the the togetherness of the indigenous groups as such that was targeted um and that is the claim that this report makes out and i i think you're right to cl- to point out that that's not you know uh fanciful at all it's it can certainly be the subject of debate among reasonable and informed you know uh experts of genocide law but it's not crazy and part of the public discussion here has been you know to deny even the relevance of of having that debate at an expert level and has tried to shift it you know, as a political tactic, I think, to really shift it to, back to the level of the sort of the uninformed and, you know, oftentimes racist and ignorant member of the ordinary public, uh, rather than using this as a, as a learning moment to educate ourselves um, about what the law of genocide actually is and, and about the actual violence that Indigenous people continue to face on a daily basis in Canada
0: curious now, what's the political fallout been from this? Because, you know, like you imagine might prompt some reflection among people, but also uh, some very defensive reactions and might push people to say, you know, the hell with this political correctness. I'm going to vote for the crypto fascist. Um, so how's this going to shake out?
2: We're the overt fascist <laughs> yeah absolutely that's been really interesting so initially and this uh, this comes back to the original truth and reconciliation commission report that i referenced before from 2015 because that report um, that report found cultural genocide okay so it found that the residential school program uh, amounted to cultural genocide now cultural genocide legally speaking Today is not a recognized form of genocide. A genocide has to take a place, as I noted before, on the basis of membership in a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. So cultural group is not included, and also notably political group is not included. Some might understand those as gaps in the definition. But what the murdered the missing and murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Report found, or what it did politically and significantly, was actually to drop the qualifier of cultural in front of genocide and to actually go with genocide simpliciter. And so they said, look, based on all of all of the information that came before us, there is reason to believe that Canada failed its in its international obligation to prevent genocide and that actually it committed genocide on a on a race based level. Level that had specific negative impact on a on a gendered level as well and so we'd also note that gender is also not included as a protected group and so that's what what the report found and that's the move away from the culture qualifier what's interesting in terms of the political fallout over the last seven or eight days has been initially trudeau justin trudeau the prime minister uh welcomed the report's findings And he said that he accepted the finding of genocide, but that he didn't want to become fixated on it. He wanted to move forward, thinking about the national action plan that the government uh, is implementing, uh, and that was one of the calls uh, of action Um, In the report And actually he wanted to look ahead To ways to sort of Continue the process of reconciliation Etc And so while he accepted The terminology of genocide simpliciter He didn't want to focus on it Now a couple of days ago Turns out he's actually Started to flip-flop And has said that uh, After thinking about it He actually prefers The language of cultural genocide Now there are many reasons We can imagine why He might have done that One of them being That cultural genocide Is not actually an international crime Whereas genocide simpliciter is. And then from the point of view of the, the conservatives, Andrew Scheer, who's the leader of the conservative party, who has historic ties to rebel media, a nasty guy from the perspective of any progressive and certainly from any any leftist um has come come out uh saying that he doesn't agree with the finding of genocide uh that he doesn't he doesn't think that um that this amounts amounts to genocide on the on the level of of historical genocides and for their part the NDP which is the New Democratic Party the the more left oriented party has been pre- pretty quiet i think they're seem to be watching um, the way that this is playing out. And I do know from, from interaction and social media that research polling groups have been calling Canadians, you know, asking them what they think of the genocide finding as though that were something that were particularly relevant. So, so it's very much in progress. I think part of the reason why it's been important to me and other scholars and indigenous rights activists to explain to people, you know, why the language of genocide, which is admittedly so uh, emotionally fraught and such a trigger is important to meditate on for a moment is because uh, we want to stem the sort of tide of racial hatred that has come as a defensive reaction to it.
0: And finally, the question of remedies, so it comes up. And uh, has there been anything like the uh, debate around reparations for slavery in the U.S. going on in Canada about these injuries?
2: We haven't had that sort of debate, sort of in that language. I think uh, a reparations debate would be really helpful but I also agree that, you know, with Trudeau, in a sense, that forward-looking, forward, forward looking, um, really stru- deep structural changes are also needed. So reparations that would make up for past acts, but also a change in policy that recognizes that current acts are also creating harm, right? So that the status quo itself is not good enough. It also needs to change. And then more than that, I w- I'd also point out that the report is careful not to take off the, ta- the you know the policy table, the question of pursuing individual criminal liability and I think again, I think that's something that the you know political officials have not want wanted at all to gesture to, but there' sim- there certainly is the possibility of pursuing some kind of criminal investigation as well. And so there are certainly different I think there's a multi pronged approach will be the sort of thing that indigenous uh, communities are going to want to pursue. And as I said, you know, that can put on the table reparations. It will also include forcing the government to, to act on the, on the many, many, Uh, calls for action, like a whole host of better funding structures for Indigenous communities and peoples. And then also, you know, the the idea of of state-based or individual criminal liability is also an option um, that can be pursued as well. So there's certainly many concrete options moving forward. Using the language of genocide is not simply semantic. It's not simply meant to shock the public. Um, or anything like that. It actually is the foundation of concrete legal and policy steps that can be taken uh, moving forward.
0: That was Heidi Matthews, assistant professor at Osgood Hall Law School at York University in Toronto. Her research focuses on international criminal law and law and sexuality. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Beethoven's String Quartet Number no. 14 in C-sharp minor, a passage that Richard Wagner called the most melancholy in all of music. Hyperbolic maybe and based in a rather narrow canon, but there's something to the claim. Till next week, bye.